I just want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the 14th chapter of Mark's Gospel. My intention this morning is to take us back into uh, this Gospel and back into the narrative which Mark records of these final um, hours really now before Jesus will be arrested and then crucified. And we're coming to the story of one of the most holy and um, important moments in all of Scripture, which is that final night when Jesus ate the supper with his disciples, with the 12 disciples, when he ate the last supper with them in anticipation of his coming arrest and death, which obviously he has predicted and expects and knows is about to come upon him. I want to read to you from the 12th verse of the 14th chapter in Mark, and I'm going to read to you right down to the 25th verse where we have the instructions concerning the Lord's Supper. It says this, And on the first day of unleavened bread, which is, of course, one of the festivals that they celebrate around Passover, it says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large room, upper room, furnished and ready there, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and said to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. We know that these are precious moments that are occurring shortly before Jesus will be crucified and put to death by the Roman authorities working in collusion with the Jewish authorities who wanted rid of Jesus. And when you consider the reality of this man, of his life, who he's around 33 years of age at this point, and how he set in birth a movement which would change the world, but how, of course, his own life was cut short, how he was crucified and uh, executed in the most brutal, ugly, bloody and gruesome fashion that the Romans could devise, when you think about the way in which his life came to an end like this, 
Many people have reflected on the reality of this death and they've come to one of two conclusions. There have been those who regard the death of Jesus as something like a, uh, a tragedy and, and therefore something which was not part of the purpose of God. It was a failure, in a sense, of the mission of Jesus in the earth. He'd come to be a revolutionary and his revolution is cut short by his premature death. And so you could liken him to a character like Martin Luther King in his prime, influencing the course of events in history, preaching and, having, and, and bringing great crowds of people along with him and then assassinated um, tragically. And so people have viewed the death of Jesus in that way and thought, well, what would have become if he'd lived? His death was not part of the plan. There was a, a theologian, or I hesitate to use the word, uh, a German man called Albert Schweitzer, who portrayed the death of Jesus in this way. And he described it in this way. He describes events. He said, the Son of Man lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution which is to bring all ordinary history to a close, it refuses to turn. And he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. The wheel rolls onward and the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. So essentially he describes Jesus as a failure, someone who tried to bring into effect a revolution, to turn the wheel of the world, but in the process is crushed by it and his mangled body still hangs upon that wheel as it turns and revolves. And yet, uh, when you read this story, one of the things that you ought to have noticed and which we can see when we look carefully at it, is the fact that nothing here is happening except according to the plan of Jesus himself as he makes these arrangements with his disciples for their Passover meal, you can see a supernatural and prophetic sovereign work of God, even in the little details of their day, how he says to them, go to such and such a place and speak to this person and they'll prepare a room for us. And and Mark tells us it happened just as he told them. And you can see even the control of God right down to the tragic aspect of this disciple Judas, one of the twelve, betraying him. And Jesus says of it that the Son of Man goes as it's written of him. It was written in the Old Testament scriptures that he would be betrayed and so it happens. And so what we're seeing, rather than something which is like a plan gone awry or gone wrong or failed, as we so often experience in our own plans, what we're rather seeing is the, the author of the story in the script itself coordinating and moving the pieces in such a way that everything is happening according to the plan of God. And the reason why I stress that for you and why it's so important as you think about this story is because if you can see that everything here is happening according to a plan, then it also follows that there is therefore a purpose within the plan. And if you ask the question, what is the purpose for which all of these events are taking place? What is the purpose for which Christ is so deliberately, so carefully, moving toward the moment of his own execution, the answer to that question is that the purpose is you. When John was writing his gospel, 
one of the disciples writing his account, that famously he recorded that God so loved the world that he sent his only beloved son. And what we get is the picture of everything happening according to a divine purpose and that it is, the purpose is love and the purpose is you. That Christ is ordaining all of these moments for your sake. And therefore, when we're introduced here to the Lord's Supper, communion we call it, or the Eucharist, has different terms, but effectively the meal, the bread and the wine, which the church has celebrated ever since Jesus initiated it here. When Jesus says to his disciples as this supper begins, he says, take, this is my body. That word take should therefore be heard in a very personal way that he's speaking directly to you and not just to these 12 men in the room because this institution was set up for God's people for all time. And so this word take has the force partly of a command. He's saying to you, take. And Jesus is not embarrassed or hesitant to make that kind of demand on people. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer in Jesus, he would look you in the eye and say, take. Take what I'm offering. Take the salvation that I'm offering. And it has that force of a command, something which you either obey or disobey, but something that you cannot remain neutral towards. If you walk into someone's home and they say, there's a meal, eat it. You can't just remain neutral to the option. They says, take, make a decision. But it also has the force of an invitation, doesn't it? It's partly a command. But it's also an invitation because what he's inviting us to partake of is something good. Jesus often described uh, his kingdom and what he's inviting people in to experience. He described it often as a feast. And so I think it's important that what he's, the way he pictures this salvation here with the bread and the wine is in the context of a feast. It's an invitation for you to enjoy something which you have never tasted or experienced before. To partake of something that will change your life. I want to therefore ask, what is it that he's inviting us to experience? What is the meaning of this meal and what is the significance of it in the light of the salvation which Jesus offers us in the gospel? And I want to show you four things that occur out of really these last verses here that, that give explanation to or give flesh to our understanding of what the gospel is and what it is that Jesus is inviting us to experience. I want to show you four things. The first is this, that Jesus is offering food for you. He's offering food. I think we, we should not miss the fact that this is a meal and that that has a kind of heavy spiritual significance to it. It says, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And so the communion supper, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper that we celebrate is first and foremost a meal that speaks of the fact that God is offering us some kind of food. Now, I think some of the force of this is lost in our experience. If you're a churchgoer and you've partaken, you've enjoyed a communion meal with God's people, there are, there are various reasons why the force of this as food that, that satisfies is, is lost on us. Partly it's because of the way we do communion that's so meager. We often offer just a tiny pinch of bread or a tiny wafer 
a tiny crumble of a, a cracker, wherever, whatever it is in your particular church. In our church, you know, we, we, we tear up a loaf, but you just get a little morsel of that bread in your mouth. And so it doesn't really speak to us of the abundance of a meal, of being satisfied. But when the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper in the years following this, it was always in the context of a, a great feast that they would sit down and they would eat until they were satisfied and they would eat enough bread that they really felt like it was, it was touching them in, in a physical way. It's also the case that bread is just a lot less important to us today than it was then. And this is for various reasons. I know some of you have your dietary requirements and so therefore you avoid gluten lest it cause havoc to your bowels. Others of you are, um, are Asian and therefore really bread may not be part of fundamental part of the diet. Maybe rice would be a better equivalent. Some of you are South African and you think that carbohydrate is of the devil and you're following your keto plan. And some of you are just middle class and you'd rather that he'd offered quinoa. But whatever it is, whatever reason that, that bread has lost its force, you have to understand that when Jesus was, uh, was tearing a loaf and offering them bread here, he was offering them the most basic sustenance for life because bread was there, was what they ate morning, noon and night. It was, it was the fundamental part of their, their diet that didn't shift even if everything else was optional. Bread was the fundamental thing that kept them alive on a daily basis. So when he's saying to you, take, this is my body, you have to hear the force of this. He's not, he's not holding up a menu like they do in a restaurant and saying, what would you like? Why don't you choose from this menu? And the menu is, is scrapped. There's no menu. There's one thing. It's bread. You either take it and live or you refuse it and die. You have to understand the force of this or what Jesus is describing here is something so fundamental to our existence, to our life, that without it we perish. And that is what the Christian message is all about. When he's offering us food, he's offering us something to keep us alive and to give us life. And he makes this very clear in another part of the Gospels, in John's Gospel, in the sixth chapter. He says that the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Bread and life, he associates them as being equivalent. Then he says more explicitly, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What does this mean for you? I think that you have to understand that what he's offering here, when he offers himself, symbolized by this bread, you have to see it first and foremost as the offer of life. We know that we need to eat in order to be alive. And Jesus says the same is true spiritually. What are you eating spiritually? We're all consuming something spiritually, something to satiate our hunger, something to satisfy our thirst. We are constantly consuming. But the things you are consuming are either leading to death or that it's leading to life. And he says the only option for life is himself. And so he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is true on a couple of levels. It's true in the sense of eternal life. Christians unashamedly believe that the offer of the Christian faith is that you will have the opportunity to live for eternity. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. We've all been confronted by the fear of death in this particular season. And I think that this 
unbelievable panic that we've seen in the world around us, such that we'll even sacrifice our greatest idol, which is money, for a greater one, which is life. The desire to survive, to cling on to this life, what we're seeing is a desperation that's born out of the fear of the abyss. Jesus says, look, that fear is natural. You need to confront the reality of death, but there's a way through it. There's a way beyond death, and it's to enjoy the meal that is Christ, to, to consume him. He offers you eternal life, but more than that also, he offers you the daily experience of nourishment when you are related to him. He says a bit further on in John's Gospel, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He's describing there the day-to-day ongoing experience that just as every day of your life, you wake up, you feel hunger, you, you get, find some food, and then you feel hunger later in the day, you eat again, that it's a constant ex- thing that you are nourishing yourself. In the same way, being related to Jesus and part of the Christian life is knowing the daily nourishment of relationship with him. He's bred to us in that day-by-day experience. This is why in the Lord's Prayer, he taught us to pray, give us our daily bread. I don't think it was primarily about your provision, though it does include that, but your physical provision. I think it was primarily speaking about this, that every day your deepest need is to abide in Christ By feeding on him. So when he says to his disciples, take, this is my body. He's offering you spiritual food, which satisfies your heart, your soul, which touches you in the deepest part. Let me show you a second thing then. He offers food for you, but he also offers forgiveness for you. Now, I want to read to you a couple more verses then from what he says here. Verse 23 And 24, it says that he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, so he says a prayer over it, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And of course, the cup is is full of wine. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, we're describing here then the element of forgiveness. Jesus doesn't just offer us food, satisfaction, life. He also offers us forgiveness in this supper, in this meal. And I think that, by and large, if you consider your emotional reaction to the language of forgiveness, most of us are somewhat apathetic to it because we've lost the sense of urgency and the desperate need to evade and to avoid the judgment of God. This is why people are so blasé about spiritual matters. It's why they, they, they're kind of laissez-faire. They can take or leave spiritual things. They wander in and out of church. They, they consider, they flirt with spirituality for a while, and then they think, ah, oh, it's not for me. People are altogether relaxed about these things. And the reason is that we've lost the urgency that comes from awareness of a holy God over us who we will face one day, and to whom we will give an account of the lives that we've lived and who will examine us. When the disciples were offered this cup of wine, which spoke of blood, you see the context of it, which I'll explain to you in a moment, underlined for them, underlined for them that this is something urgent. 
something pressing, something very desperate that you need to get right with God in the here and now. Now let me explain to you what's going on. They are on this evening celebrating, as Mark tells us, the Passover meal. The festival that the Jewish people celebrate even to this day, which records the greatest moment of deliverance in their history. When they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. And if you know the story, God afflicts the Egyptians with ten plagues in order to compel Pharaoh to release the Israelites from their slavery, from their bondage, in order to, for them to be a free people and to go and worship him. And Pharaoh keeps refusing until the tenth and final plague, the worst of all the plagues, when God would send the angel of death over the land of Egypt and every firstborn son in every household would be killed. But of course, so that the Israelites would not experience the suffering of death afflicting their own households, God makes provision for them. And what they were instructed to do was to take a lamb for each household or to pull households together if the house was too small, take a lamb and to, to slaughter it, collect the blood and to cook the meat, to eat eat it that night and not leave a scrap of it wasted and to eat fully dressed, ready to go, staff in hand, shoes on their feet, cloak on and then to take the blood that they had collected and they would smear it on the lintels of the doors, across the top and down on the doorposts, almost in a cross shape I suppose, so that it says that the angel of the death would pass over, he would pass over, the judgment of God would pass over the households of the Israelites and only touch the wicked Egyptians who had afflicted them and, 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 and oppressed them. And ever since they were instructed to remember that moment of God's salvation by celebrating this particular meal. And so the blood, symbolized here with wine, preaches about a warning, really, of the coming wrath of God, of the judgment of God that will come over, but also of the opportunity to take shelter under the blood of the Lamb who dies in place of the firstborn. And of course, this is what's taken up in the New Testament. Jesus would die within hours, actually, and his lifeblood would flow from his body and pour onto the ground. And it was always seen within the context of the Old Testament sacrifices and indeed within the context of the Passover lamb that was killed in Egypt on that holy night, that dreadful night. The New Testament writers, as they reflect on the death of Jesus, they particularly think about his blood and what his blood does for us as people, how his blood saves us. They speak about it in this way, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says that in him we have redemption, which is a kind of rescue, isn't it? A kind of salvation. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. What sins have you committed in life? What sins have you nurtured in your heart? I know from my own part, things have, have, my life has been tainted just as yours has. And he says that in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That Christ's blood is potent in that it can purchase for us forgiveness before a holy God. The blood is also spoken of as something which can make you feel clean. I suppose if forgiveness or atonement or redemption is something that happens in the presence of God, in the mind of God, in the decision of God to offer you forgiveness... 
the sense of being clean is also something that you can experience personally in a more subjective way. The New Testament talks about the blood offering you that sense of being clean. It says, for example, in Revelation chapter 7, it describes those God's people gathered before the throne worshipping Him. And it says this, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's such a strange and bizarre image, isn't it? Because if you wash your clothes in blood, they'll be red and then eventually brown as the blood dries and coagulates on your garments. But what he says here is that by washing their garments in the blood of the Lamb, they're rendered white, they're rendered clean. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, this is described in a slightly different way. He says, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So this cleansing is something which, which touches your life in such a way that your conscience feels um, purified. You don't feel like you have to carry guilt with you anymore. There's no more shame to carry around with you. You don't feel defiled or dirty by the things that you have done or the things that have been done to you. All of that can be washed away by the blood. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And those who are plunged beneath the flood wash all their guilty stains, the hymn says. The blood also speaks of the watertight case that Christ makes before the throne of God on your behalf. Let me just read you one fascinating verse in the book of Hebrews where it says, it speaks of the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Who was Abel? Abel was the first man to be murdered in Genesis chapter 4, murdered by his own brother. And as his lifeblood poured onto the ground of the field in which they were in which Cain slaughtered him, God comes onto the scene to speak to Cain and says that the blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. You ask, well, what is Abel's blood crying out for? It's crying out for justice, for vengeance, I suppose, for judgment against Cain who had killed him. So when the author to the Hebrews thinks about the blood of Jesus, which poured out of his guiltless body onto the ground of that, that, those dusty streets in Jerusalem on the day that he was slaughtered. He says that the sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel because it doesn't cry to God from the ground for justice and judgment against us, the guilty people. It rather cries out for mercy. It rather cries out, forgive them for they know not what they do. Are you aware of your need to be forgiven? Jesus offers you food, which is life. He offers you forgiveness. Let me show you a third thing. He also offers to be faithful to you. And this comes through in the curious little phrase here. When he hands out the cup, he says, This is my blood of the covenant. Do you know what that means when he says, this is my blood of the covenant? Now here's how we must understand what's going on here. In the ancient world, in the Hebrew uh, tradition, 
Whenever a covenant was made between two parties, a covenant agreement, a, a kind of legal um, binding contract, a vow, whenever this kind of covenant relationship was formed, the Hebrews spoke of a covenant being cut. They said, we, we speak these days of contracts being signed and sealed, but they spoke of a covenant being cut. And what often accompanied that, the, the establishment of covenant, was literally the cutting of flesh. So that when God, for example, speaks to Abraham, the father of all God's people, in Genesis 15, and he establishes his covenant with him, in which he says, I'll be a God to you and, you'll, and I'll bless you and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. This is a covenant relationship that God forms with his people through this father of all his people, Abraham. Abraham is instructed to make sacrifices and he slaughters animals and cuts them in two and God passes over those animals. It's a seal of the covenant. Then a couple of chapters later in Genesis 17, Abraham, following God's instruction, cuts his own foreskin and all the men in his household. They cut off the foreskin and so seals the covenant by cutting it. When centuries later, the, the Jewish people having just been delivered from slavery in Egypt, are brought to um, the experience of, of coming under God's rule as his people. God gives them his law. And this is the kind of terms of his covenant relationship with them. And uh, under Moses' leadership, the law comes and this relationship is formed. The co- God has a covenant relationship with his people. And the way in which it happens goes like this. It says, Moses took of the blood of these animals, these sacrifices, and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And you picture the scene. Moses reads to them the law, which are the kind of terms of the covenant, the contract which God has made with his people. They hear the word and they say, we will follow it. They verbally agree to the terms of the covenant. But that's not the end of it, because then the way in which Moses seals it is by taking slaughtered animals and spraying God's people with the blood of these animals. Now, similarly in in the marriage, in, in in, in the Bible, marriage is a covenant which is made partly of vows, but also the covenant cutting act which is the sexual union between the man and the woman. So often, even when a virgin first um, makes love to a husband, there may, be, there may be bleeding that takes place on that first time, and the covenant is cut. So in the Bible, you see that sex without the vows is a mockery of marriage, but the vows without sex is a tragedy. But when you see the two things come together, and this, the covenant is cut so that the promises are sealed by the act of making love, then you have an unbreakable bond which can only be destroyed by tragic sin within the lives of humans. Now, why am I stressing this to you? Because when Jesus passed out this cup and said, this is my blood of the covenant, he's speaking here about the promises that God would make to be our saviour. But he's saying that they are sealed, the promises are sealed, by his own blood, so that those promises are absolutely, totally unbreakable. That Christ will be faithful to you 
in a way that his faithfulness cannot be broken. He will never let go of you. You may be thinking, what about Judas? Isn't Judas here in this room and doesn't he walk away from Jesus and doesn't he suffer a judgment and isn't it possible therefore that I could also lose this salvation which Christ is offering to me? And of course I think in one level that we all ought to be as suspicious of our own hearts in the way the disciples are. When Jesus says to them that one of you is going to betray me, what do the disciples say? They say, it says they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? It's right that a Christian examines himself and says, is it possible that I could walk away from my Lord? Could I betray my Lord? Is it possible? And you look at your own spiritual state and you consider your spirituality and you ask yourself, am I truly part of God's family? Am I truly saved? Could I ever walk away? Could I ever betray my Savior? I think it's right and and good to ask yourself that question from time to time. However, when Jesus establishes this covenant, the character of this covenant is described for us in various passages in the Old Testament. For example, in Jeremiah 31, it says this. God says, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I'll forgive their iniquity and will remember their sins no more God is describing this new covenant that he would just, he would give offer us in Jesus in the gospel and he says this He'll put his law in your heart. No longer will it be an act of the will to follow God so much as an act of your desire. He'll change you from the inside out so that you cannot betray God. You cannot betray your Savior. So I conclude when I look at the actions of Judas here in this passage that even if Christ's faithfulness is unbroken, I think it's obviously clear that Judas was never really part of God's family in the first place. Similarly, in Ezekiel 36, it says, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and, and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you. Whenever God describes the great work of salvation that he was going to put into place through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the gospel by his death on the cross. Whenever he describes it, he describes something miraculous and supernatural which will take place within the hearts of God's people. That the new covenant will mean that God will move in to your life and he'll start rearranging you. He'll replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He'll breathe his spirit into you and no longer, it says, will you be able to have to say to one another, know the Lord. This is how you know the Lord, but rather you'll know him personally and in Ultimately, you'll know him for yourself and you, having known him, you will never be able to walk away from him. When Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, he's saying that whenever you're truly saved and you consume, as it were, the blood of Christ into your being, you're saved for eternity and you can never be released from the grip because you're in the covenant. Let me show you one final thing. Jesus says and shows us here that he's offering to feast with you. The last verse of our passage, verse 25, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
So here they are, they're celebrating a feast. And obviously at a feast, wherever there's a feast in the Bible, there's also wine. And ideally lots of it, as there was at the wedding of Cana. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to drink wine again until I feast with you on the final day when all things come to their right conclusion. Which tells you something very fascinating about what Christ is doing here by instituting the Lord's Supper. What is the Lord's Supper? Primarily the Lord's Supper communion is a remembrance. We eat the bread, we drink the wine in order to recall what happened more than 2,000 years ago or around 2,000 years ago when Jesus died for us. And it tells us that once and for all, in history gone by, the most important thing imaginable took place when our salvation was secured and guaranteed even before you were born and before you ever committed a sin or put your faith in Jesus or experienced his grace in your life. It was all done and dusted back then. So we eat the bread and we drink the wine, not because there's some magic power in it, but because it reminds us of the fact that it was all accomplished for us. This is what's so unique about the Christian faith. It's the sense in which it's so much is past tense. It's done. But having said that, there's also a future element to this, isn't there? We eat the bread and drink the wine. And it's a little bit like, you know when you, your, your mum used to bake a cake when you were a kid? And what would you do? You'd ask for the bowl and the spatula to lick the cake mix and to taste it before the thing had baked because that was your first enjoyment of the cake. And it told you good things were coming once that oven had done its job to bake the thing. Or it's a little bit like how if you're enjoying a Sunday roast, you know, if you're anything like me, you might snaffle a Yorkshire pudding long before um, the, the dinner is served on the table or you'll be the one cutting the meat and you'll have a little taste before it gets served on the plates because you can't help it, right? In a sense, what we're talking about here is that when Jesus gives us this experience of his grace and communion, he says, eat the bread, drink the wine, it's meant to be just an appetizer, just a little taste that tells us that one day we're going to feast with him in the life to come. Now, this is unimaginably important for us. And I'll tell you why. Because it's, it, it means that hope is injected into the Christian faith. When the disciples were celebrating this meal, they were about to go into the darkest days of their lives as they experienced the death of their saviour, Jesus. And even after his resurrection in their lives to come, they'd experienced many more dark days. They'd experienced betrayals. They'd experienced beatings and, and, and suffering on account of the gospel. They'd experienced sickness. They'd experienced the loss of loved ones. In other words, they'd know all of the kinds of hardships that you and I go through, the fears, the terrors of, of, of hostile governments and powers over them, of, of betrayal from within. They know all of that stuff. So what kept them going? And the answer is simply hope. You know, Viktor Frankl f famously wrote about his account of experiencing uh, the death camps under the Nazis. And he said that in his observation that those who survived the camps had one quality that they all shared in common, that they were hopeful. Those who didn't succumb to the starvation or to the 
the depression and the agony of the suffering of the daily grind of being in those camps. He says the ones who were able to keep going and to survive had hope in their heart. And the Christian faith is partly about what Jesus has done for us 2,000 years ago, but it's also about what's coming. It's also about the fact that whenever we eat the bread and drink the wine in particular, we remember we're going to drink with Jesus one day. And all of this anxiety of this present moment will be gone. You might find yourself often wondering about the sufferings of life and about the turmoil we're going through and about the political upheavals and about the, 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 the chaos all around us that only seems to be getting worse. And the bizarreness of this particular year. But it doesn't matter in one sense. We have these two firm anchors. We have the death of Christ and we have the return of Christ. And between that, even if we experience immense volatility and chaos and even trauma in our lives in the here and now, God's people are people who are firmly anchored to those twin poles of history. You're unshakable. And your joy should not disappear. I want to bring this to a a close right now. This afternoon when we do our in-person services, we intend to celebrate communion together for the first time since March. And as you know, in our church, it's a weekly occurrence to have the bread and drink the wine. But of course, right now, we're not doing that in the live stream service. And there's something inappropriate about communion separated from one another, given the fact that it is meant to be a family meal. It's meant to be a fellowship meal. But let me just say a couple of things to you as I close. I want to remind you, first of all, that the Lord's Supper is not the thing. The thing is what it points to. The bread, the wine, the symbols. And the reality is, is, is very much yours right now. If you put your faith in Jesus, you're consuming him. You're, you're, you're covered by his blood. Everything that I've said to you about this gospel is yours right now for those who believe in Christ. And it's not about the eating and the drinking. They're, they're to remind us. But they're not the thing. The thing is Jesus. But I also say this, just a final exhortation. We need to be together as often as we can as God's people. And if you're holding back from, from coming to church, I want to strongly exhort you to reconsider that position. You know, these live streams have been great in the sense that we've been able to do it, but this isn't church. Church is being together as God's people, even amid all the restrictions that we are experiencing. Why? Because we need to know the presence of Christ among us as God's people. We need to eat the bread together. We need to drink the wine together. I want to leave that thought with you, but remind you that first and foremost, this is about Christ, what he offers you. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you food. He offers you his faithfulness. And he offers to feast with you. Let's pray. Pete and Nats are going to come and lead us in a response of worship. It may be the case that you are not a Christian. And what I've described to you today sounds good. And he said, that's what I need. And I would agree with you. I think this is the most important news the world has ever heard. And these realities are the most important truths that the human soul can ever understand and grasp and perceive that God has offered away through Jesus. And I want to strongly encourage you 
to take action even today if you're aware of your need to get right with God. And it can be as simple as just offering a prayer to him. Going, God, forgive me of my sins. I want to be saved by the blood of your son, Jesus. Why don't we pray together and respond to the Lord in worship. Father, we thank you that your plan is beautiful and perfect and comprehensive in its scope, how you hold together all of history in your great plan and design and how all of that comes to a beautiful, clear focus in the great moment that punched through the canvas of history when Christ came to offer his life on the cross. And I ask that this reality be renewed to our imaginations and our minds again today. That our faith will be reinvigorated. That we'll know we're forgiven. That we'll feast on you. That we'll enjoy you. That we'll come back into close relationship with you. That we'll celebrate the goodness that you offer us through your son. Spirit, move upon our hearts in fresh ways, we pray. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.